Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kenny DeForest. I don't know where to turn for answers. That's when I discovered drugs. <laughs> that and more, but before that, I should tell you that this week's episode is brought to you in part by Casper Mattresses at Casper.com, where you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting Casper.com slash risk and using the promo code risk. These Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at a shockingly reasonable price. They've got just the right sink, just the right bounce. They use two technologies to get these Casper mattresses just right, latex foam and memory foam coming together for just the perfect fit. This is a risk-free trial with a return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They're made in America. This is $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. You go to the store, you'd be paying $1,500 for that kind of a mattress. And right now, you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash risk and using the promo code risk. And now... Who wants to dance? Take it from this redhead queer. You don't have time to go to the post office. It will be packed with so many people you'll want to scream. So use stamps.com instead. You use your own computer and printer to print your U.S. postage for your letters and packages. We use stamps.com. Why don't you do stamps.com? Right now, get this special offer when you use my promo code RISK. It's a no risk trial, and we know that's just confusing. <gasps> Plus $110 bonus off for the digital scale and free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else click the mic on the homepage and type in risk that stamps.com enter risk now here's the show Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Beatles behind me now, and we're calling today's episode Druggy. These are uh, three stories uh, wherein mind altering substances played a key role in the key of 
drugaliciousness. And a little bit. We're going to hear from uh, comedian Rob Christensen, but we're going to start with comedian Kenny DeForest, who told this story at the Risk Live show uh, just a few weeks ago, right here in New York City. We call this one Montra, 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 Montra. So, a little bit about my background before we get to the story. I, uh, I grew up in South Missouri in the Bible Belt, and uh, there was two things I really cared about as a kid. That was uh, my religion and basketball. That's what I did. I played basketball, and I cared about religion. That's what I did, and that's all I believed in. I didn't think about the future. I was focused on that my whole entire life. I played two years of college basketball as a walk-on, hurt my knees, I was out. And when I was in college, I started to question my religion. I started to have questions about it. Like, you know, is that even possible that there's like a guy just watching all of this? <laughs> it doesn't really add up. 9-11 it happened, I was like, explain that shit. Uh, so I started questioning my religion and really eventually shed it. Basketball was over and now I was left with a void. There was no God, no basketball. <laughs> what the fuck am I gonna do? I don't know where to turn for answers. That's when I discovered drugs. <laughs> I believe in omens. And that's my spirituality. I believe in omens. I do think the universe speaks to us. Whatever the universe is, I believe it speaks to us. And I believe it only speaks to us whenever we're looking for it. And there's really no better way to tell the universe you're looking for answers than to take drugs. Uh, it's literally like, all right, I'm looking now. <laughs> you can go ahead and show me. As you can tell by the mushrooms I ingested, I am very interested <laughs> in what you have to say now. So this story takes place, I was 26, I'm 29 now, this was three years ago, I was having a quarter-life crisis. Now, I had taken mushrooms before, I had had one profound trip before the one I'm about to tell you about, and it actually led me, it was after college, I backpacked Europe after college because I'm a white person and it's what we do. <laughs> Backpacking Europe is birthright for Gentiles. Uh, we go to Europe, we get in touch with our heritage. <laughs> so I got a degree in finance and economics. I did it to please my parents. They wanted me to go to school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. All of a sudden, I'm a graduate. I still have no idea what I want to do. I have all these job offers in finance. I'm backpacking Europe. I know all I care about is making people laugh. It's the only thing I've ever cared about, but it's not practical. Who has a college degree from a private liberal arts school and becomes a comedian? What a slap in my parents' face. Who I love. 
but I had taken mushrooms in Amsterdam in a field, in a meadow. And I had seen what's important in life. And the opposite of what's important in life is a finance bro. That is the opposite. If I could draw for you, <laughs> if you told me, Kenny, please sketch who doesn't get it, I would draw a finance bro. Just with a coke ring on his nose. <laughs> so I decided to be a comedian and I moved to Chicago, actually living with a person I met the day after the mushroom trip in Amsterdam. I lived with that person for six months in Chicago pursuing comedy. I did that for about three years and I was feeling okay about my path, but then I hit another crisis, you know? The question kept hitting me. Are you ever gonna grow up? Are you an adult? And this was the big question. Are you running towards something or are you running away from something? Which one is it? Why are you a comedian? Are you just an attention-starved egomaniac that needs external validation to feel happy? What is this? What is this compulsion that makes you content being completely broke in your 20s with no relationships to speak of and all you have is a fucking notebook with dumb observations and jokes in it. What is this? And I started feeling like I was disappointing my family and my parents because there's a stigma with comedians that we're all fucked up and we were diddled when we were younger and we had bad parents that didn't care about us and didn't pay attention to. I had great parents, they were the best. So I was wondering, what the fuck am I, what am I doing? So I got back from a trip home. I was talking to my friends and we were like, man, we were, I was talking to another buddy of mine, similar background, and we had the same concerns. And we were like, you know what? I think I have a solution. We're going to Bonnaroo. <laughs> and I'd never been to a music festival before, man. And I was excited. We bought our tickets. And we're both comedians. Actually, there was three of us, but two of us decided to go, a third friend joined us, all three comedians, all doing comedy about the same amount of time. And we were like, you know what, let's just go down there and fucking lose ourselves in the festival. We'll do some drugs. We'll hit the reset button. We'll tell the universe we're looking for answers. So we get to Bonnaroo. We're hanging out. And if you've ever been to a music festival, it's amazing because it's literally tens of thousands of people all simultaneously having the best weekend they've had that year. <laughs> it's just imagine if New York City, but everyone's in a good mood. <laughs> That's what it is. It's just everyone's like, yes! It's infectious. I'm looking for answers. Why do I want to do comedy? I knew I had something to say, but that's hard to do. It's hard to stand in front of people and be like, this is how I feel about shit. It's a hard thing to do. It's easier to be like, my dick's weird, LOL, you know? <laughs> but that's not the kind of comedy I wanted to do. I wasn't happy with the way the world was. I mean, you look around, this shit is a fucking shit storm and everyone pretends it isn't. And it's hard to be the one that says, isn't this a fucking shit storm? But I knew I wanted to do that. Just didn't know how to fucking do it. So we get to Bonnaroo, and we decide to take mushrooms on the first day. So we get our mushrooms, we eat them, we get into the park, and immediately we're like, that was too many mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> this was an uncomfortable amount of mushrooms. 
There is a lot of people here. <laughs> Holy shit. So we're in a pretty much collective panic. And we're looking to find a band called Tune Yards. That's who we wanted to see that day, because she's amazing, her band's awesome. We're looking. We, don't even, we can't read maps. We're just like... <sighs> so we're just wandering around. We're like, God damn it, I don't know. So suddenly we just hear some music, and we're like, great, this'll work, park it. And we just sit down, like, ah, oh, thank goodness. Some music. So we're listening to some reggae band from North Carolina that I've never heard of. This was probably their big break. They were on a side stage. They weren't even advertised on the poster. It was pretty much like the open micer version of bands. But they were incredible, right? And I'm just like grooving to it. Now, what you need to know about me, another thing, is my whole life I've been a gigantic worrier. I'm always in my head. And I've been very concerned about what people think about me very obsessively concerned. I would buy a new shirt and be like, what do you think of this shirt? What do you think of this shirt? Do you like the shirt? Should I get a new shirt? Would a different shirt make you like me more? How should we do this? It affected my basketball playing. It affected everything in my life. My comedy, I was very robotic on stage. I would just look at my set list, hold the mic like this, and just like crinkle my lips nervously and like haphazardly deliver decently written jokes, but with no passion. I've always just been a complete worrier, and I've always liked to be in control, because I don't want to be let down. I'm always like, I got, I'm the, <laughs> and when you're on mushrooms, you can't do that, you know? <laughs> so these mushrooms are just really hitting, and I'm just kind of like, I don't, I gotta just don't get crazy now. And all of a sudden, I'm listening to this band I've never heard of, and I just, I'm thinking about comedy, and I'm like, I want answers, and what kind of comedian, why am I, are my parents disappointed, what is that? And all of a sudden, I just start to hear a phrase in my head over and over again. It just goes, let it, 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 let it. I'm like, what, let what, let it, let it. Let it. So all of a sudden I just go. And I lay down. Let it. Let it. And I feel my anxiety go away. Just let it. Just let it. You're fine. Just let it. Let it. Let it. I open my eyes. I'm looking up at the clouds. All of a sudden I see a face in the clouds. It's a female face. But I immediately knew that it was God. But I don't say God. So all of a sudden it. Oh, you're it. Let it. Let you. Let it. Let it. Oh, you're, okay. Let it. You're here for, uh, okay. Let it. And I started thinking, I see my parents in the clouds, and they're smiling. Like, we love you, idiot. Quit worrying about what we think. Okay. <laughs> Let it. Let it. And I start to realize as I'm listening to this obscure band from North Carolina that's at Bonnaroo, at the same Bonnaroo with Red Hot Chili Peppers and The Roots and D'Angelo and all these huge name acts, I'm like, man, these guys are really just as entertaining as those other bands. And I start to think about it. I'm like, you know, let it. They're just letting it. No one makes music. Humans don't create music. They let music. No one sits down with a guitar and makes music. You ever see someone with a guitar solo? No one's not doing something. They're letting something. You can't make your fingers move like that. We're fucking dumb apes. 
We don't have that ability. We're monkeys that evolves. We can't just, I know what that'll sound like. You're letting that happen. And I start to realize, let it, let it. Every band here has the same energy flowing through them. And it's her. And they're just letting it happen. And they're just having fun. <sighs> let it, let it. I just started to feel this peace. And then I was thinking even further, all right, what do I want to say? How do I want to change the world? What's my contribution going to be? What do I have to say into a microphone to make society realize what we need to do? Because I'm part of a generation that was handed a shit sandwich. And we got to put the pieces together. How are we going to do this? Be it. Be it. Be it. Let it. Be it. Let it. But also be it. Be what? It. That thing you saw. The thing that's flowing through all the bands here. You have it. Just let it and be it. That's all you got to do. Just let it and be it. It's in you. You've been funny your whole life. What are you so worried about? Why are you so convinced that you're not funny? All you've done your whole life is make people laugh. Why are you writing this shit down and having sweaty panic attacks before every set you have? You're funny. Just be it. Fuck your set list. Fuck your stupid jokes. Grab a microphone. Be funny till you get the light. Let it come through you. Believe it. Be it. <sighs> so I sit up. <laughs> and I look at my friends like, <laughs> And my buddy goes, what? And I go, let it be it. Let it be it. Let it be it. Let it be it. He's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I go, pen and paper. So I write out, let it and then above the it I write be so let it be it let it be it and I turn it to him and he goes oh my god <laughs> and I go do you get it he goes let it be it I go ah, oh that's how I know we both have the same energy flowing through us <laughs> so we get up and we're gonna go, we're trying to find tune yards, but we're still too fucked up. My friends are still not in a good place. I now feel like I understand everything. <laughs> so I'm like, don't worry guys, this group now has a leader. <laughs> Follow me! So we just take off walking. I've never walked so musically in my life. I was like swaying just past people, but like it was a dance, like never touching anyone, just through swaths of people. My friends are behind me, they're starting to freak out. My friend starts to have like a too high mushroom peak and I go, you know what? This is the place. And as soon as we sit down, this song starts to play. So that was Tune Yards. We had found the stage. And I've never felt more at peace with who I am as a person or what I believe. Because I had gone through all of that, sat my friends down. Not only did we find the band, but we found the band that was telling us that everything's going to be okay. 
Everything's gonna be all right, as long as we let it be it. And that's my wrist tattoo that I got as soon as I got home. <laughs> to remind myself every day what I believe in. Thank you guys so much. Let it be it. For though they may be parted, there is still a chance that they will see. There will be an answer. Let it be it. Let it be it. Let it be it. Let it be it. Just let it and be it. Yeah, there will be an answer. Let it be it. So uh, like, uh, I'm like a huge drug addict, or I was a seriously big drug addict, and I used to sell the fuck out of ketamine and PCP, which are odd drugs to sell. I used to love smoking PCP. PCP is good because of the stories, like the stories are better than other drugs. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna have some drinks, you're gonna dance all night, you're gonna smoke some weed, maybe you'll sit back, talk all night, you're gonna do some molly, maybe you'll dance all night and talk all night and freak people out with your jaw all night. But when you smoke PCP, you're like, I flipped a car tonight! <laughs> Consequences don't exist. I'm going to jail now on the weekend for the next 12 weekends. I copped a plea and uh, got the weekend thing. But the best drug, my favorite drug to this day, and the drug that I abused the most was ketamine, Special K. I did the whole rave thing. And, and when I tell people that, most people don't know what ketamine is. And they always ask me, hey, Rob, what does ketamine feel like? And I don't want to lie to anyone or gloss it over, so I always tell them that I was addicted to ketamine. It started to control my life. My, fr my friends were gone, my job was gone, my family was gone. I got to the point where I started to inject it with a needle so that I could get higher. And I was shooting it up and like digging through the garbage for needles and reusing needles and to the point where I got an infection in my butt where I was shooting up all the time. And uh, what an infection is when you're shooting up is basically your flesh starts to die on your body and you're walking around with dead you on you. And so I went to the doctor and what the doctor does is he cuts it open with a scalpel and just starts to squeeze all the dead raw out of living Rob's ass cheek. But you can't just sew that thing up and, and, and call it quits because there still might be some dead leaking out. So they just shove it full of gauze and let you walk around with a whole leaking dead you for a week. And you're supposed to go back and get it sewn up after you're done with the infection. But you love ketamine so much that you just start shooting ketamine in the other butt cheek. And you never make it back to the doctor to get it sewn up. And you just pull the gauze out and let it heal so you have a scar. And then eventually you just get a syringe tattooed to the side of your ass. So when you want to know how does ketamine feel... It feels fucking awesome. If I'm gonna go through all that, hey, I left my body. I rode a neon roller coaster, had conversations with a garden gnome, went up to the ceiling, turned around and looked down at myself. 
Ketamine is the best, and it makes you leave the planet. And so does PCP, and that's why I did those drugs, because I wanted to leave the planet. I didn't know then, but I did not like my childhood. I did not like anything about it. I have some horrible things happen to me that that's another story night before we get into that shit. And I was trying to escape, and I was drawn to drugs that would literally make me leave the planet. And to pay for this, I was selling drugs. And I would take a plane from Brooklyn, New York, and I would go down to San Diego, drive across the border, and buy ketamine, and bring it back to drug dealers in New York. And I know you're like, oh, he's selling for a drug dealer in Brooklyn, so it's probably some black dude in the Coney Island Projects. But in this case, it was a black dude in the Coney Island Projects. (laughs) And so I learned how to do it by muling for him, never really made any money, just got a plane ticket and a free trip to San Diego and a whole bunch of drugs. And then I was like... I was always good at running away, so I went into the military to run away, then came back and got high again. And the second time I tried to run away, I decided I was going to go to college in San Luis Obispo, California, which is the complete opposite of PCP in Brooklyn, New York. So I do that. I'm in college now, and and I was staying there over the summer and taking classes because I was a transfer student. I wanted to get out sooner, and also I didn't want to go back to Brooklyn where I'd get back involved in bad things. But uh, my best friend Gary, he was there through all of it. He came to visit me one time in San Luis Obispo. And the, the best way to describe Gary is that he's a Russian Jew, second generation. And the only reason I bring up that he's a Russian Jew is because he's like a stereotype of a Russian Jew, like a cartoon character Russian Jew. Like he knows where you can buy a wife and he'll haggle the price for it. Like he is, he doesn't make Russian Jews look good is what I'm saying. He makes you guys look bad, Okay. But I love him anyway, he's my best friend, and he came to visit me, and uh, we thought for old time's sake that we would drive down to Mexico and commit a federal felony. So we always did it the same way. We didn't want to have any time wasted, and we knew that the vet that we'd buy the ketamine from, well, I call it a vet, but really it's just a pet store. If you go down to Mexico, the pet store is also the place where people buy all the medicine for their livestock. So it opened up at 10 a.m., so we left at the perfect amount of time. At like 4 a.m., we started driving so that we would arrive in Mexico at the, at the livestock place at 10 a.m. with no time to waste. We'd go inside and we'd buy the ketamine, totally legal. I assume it's like what it's like buying weed in Portland or Seattle now. I don't know. It's a great feeling, though, because when you're always hiding shit, right? Like, you love to, I love to, I don't know about you, but I love to do this drug, right? And I'm always hiding. But then in Mexico, it's just like I'm paying over a counter, and then I would get carried away. So uh, what I did was borrow way too much money from Sally Mae every single quarter that I was in San Luis Obispo. Uh, I only needed about... (laughs) four thousand dollars to cover everything but I borrowed eight thousand dollars every single quarter in college and I would take the other four and go down to Mexico so I'm down there four thousand dollars cash from Sally Mae thanks you know government shit Uh, and I just buy too much ketamine and we keep following the ritual. The next thing we would do is we'd go and we'd go to the, guy, the fruit stand guy. We'd buy a mango because I can't cut a fucking mango, right? Then we would get high, shoot up, which was never a problem because Gary was an insulin and still is an insulin-dependent diabetic. So he was allowed to have needles. We'd be flying on planes with hundreds of syringes because he's got a prescription from a doctor. 
So we'd go and shoot up, and then we had a couple of options on the beach down there. One was ride horses, and the other was like ride four-wheelers. So we'd get high, and we'd do one or the other. I'm scared of horses, and I don't know how to ride one, even though I've ridden a horse about 30 times high on ketamine. <laughs> this time, though, we decided to ride four-wheelers, and it's like a track that's just a big circle, maybe 20 feet wide, and we just rode in circles, high on K, and rode in circles, high on K. And you can't get too high to where you like lose your ability to move and stuff, but if you get right to that right moment, it's just really cool to go in circles when you're high. Uh, and, and it's like the little things, like why wouldn't you want to do a drug that makes circles fun, you know? So we do that, and then uh, and we, we, we always got out of Mexico as soon as possible when we had our shit, because having it in Mexico is one thing, right? But as soon as you cross the border and it's illegal, it's worth 10 times as much money, and it's more dangerous, and it's like more important to have it in America. So we wanted to go straight back to the border. We had two ways to get the ketamine across the border. The first way is we'd empty the liquid ketamine into an empty tequila bottle. And we'd put the cat back on, put the plastic back on, seal it up real nice with a lighter or something, and it would look perfect. And then when we, when we were driving through the uh, border, we'd just show them we're bringing tequila back. And we'd just hold up $4,000 worth of ketamine in their face. The other way that we would do it is we'd just buy it, put it in our pocket, and walk across the border because we're motherfucking G's, act like you know. <laughs> This time we bought way too much, so we had to do the tequila bottle switch. So I'm driving, and we're looking for a place, like, off the coast, like, inner Mexico to do it. So, like, basically every Mexican neighborhood looks like the worst neighborhood in Englewood. That's pretty much across the board what Mexico looks like. And, and it's empty. There's no tourists. So we wanted to get away from the tourists to do the switch. I'm leaving the beach. I turn right, and it ends up I start driving the wrong way up a one-way street. Normally this wouldn't be a problem, but it's the street that the hospital's on, and parked out front of the hospital is an SUV with four federales in it, right? So lights go on, whoop, whoop, we get pulled over on a dead-end street, no one's around, M16's out, guns pointed at us, right? Now this is the most nervous I'd ever been to have a gun pointed at me. I've had guns pointed at me a few times in my life. Most of the time, it's when cops were pointing them at me. And you get a little nervous, but I wouldn't get that nervous because there's no way they're going to shoot me because I'm white, right? That's the way it works. I've had a gun pulled on me twice by my arch nemesis, a white crip named Billy Oates in Brooklyn. And I wasn't super nervous that I was going to get shot those two times because Billy's a motherfucking bitch and won't pull the trigger, you heard me? <laughs> But this time, I was very nervous because I'm in another country where being white is bad, all right? And not only am I a white dude, but I'm a drug dealer. And they fucking hate drug dealers in Mexico. Or you are a drug dealer in Mexico. There's only two people in, in Mexico. They pull us out of the car, they're roughing us up, they separate us to question us in, in different areas to see if our stories match up. And they start asking me where I got the K and I start screaming as loud as I can so Gary could hear my story. And I'm like, oh, we got it from a dude standing out of the carnival hotel. He asked us if he had anything and then, you know, and I told him this whole story, which is super believable because there is a dude outside of the carnival hotel that's trying to sell drugs to white people. Nor normally it's just fake drugs and he takes their money. But I told him this story because it would seem believable. I'm a drug addict and there's no way in 
hell I'm ratting out my drug dealer. You know what I'm saying? I need to be able to go back there and get more drugs. I'm screaming it so Gary hears it, and I keep talking, and I keep talking. I've been in this situation with cops before, so I know exactly what to do. And in the middle of telling this fake story, I just start crying. I just start, like, tears out of my eyes. Guys, it's actually okay to cry. You know, your dick doesn't fall off. It's like, you don't have to, you don't have to shove it down until it turns into violence. You know, I thought my whole life it had to, I thought violence was the only way I could let it out. But no, you can let the tears out. It's way less expensive. You don't have to go to jail or, you know, or nothing. So I'm crying, the cop starts feeling bad for me, and I see like a weak moment, so I start to ask him, hey, is there anything I could do to make this go away? And he got offended. He's like, what are you trying to say to me right now? But not like that, because he wasn't from Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, so I'm like, I don't know, is there something that people do in this situation? He's like, what are you trying to say to me right now? I'm like, I don't know, man. Is there something that white people, when they're getting arrested in Mexico, do to not get arrested in Mexico? And straight up, he's just like, money. I'm like, all right, bet, let's get some money. Now, of course, Gary, being the guy that he is, is not willing to give up any fucking money for this. So like, <laughs> this is like the darkest moment of our life. We're facing, he's like, I'd rather go to prison. <laughs> Then give these guys one dollar of my hard-earned money. <laughs> I don't want to go to Mexican prison, so I'm going to give them the money. But I got to hit an ATM. So the deal was that they're going to keep Gary hostage, and I'm going to go to an ATM and get the money. So I go, and I, this is important now. They're holding Gary hostage. Now I'm like the hero. Like, yo, I'm going to get this money. I'm going to save my boy, you know? And uh, I'm going to ATM after ATM, and my card is not working. I cannot get any money, and I'm now rock bottom. I don't know what to do. I can't go back empty-handed. It'll be real bad news. So I'm just like, please, God, if you're up there, please, just let me get some money out of the ATM and get out of the situation, and I promise you I will never do drugs ever again. I go to the next ATM, boom, money comes out. I got out $300, which is like 3 million pesos or something. <laughs> just a lot of, I had to fold it all up. So I get back to where they're holding Gary, and the situation's changed. Gary's sitting in this rental truck. He's white as a ghost. I know something's wrong. I don't know what they said to him, but whatever they said to him, he fucking sure wasn't going to move. He just points behind him, and I look deep down the block, even further into the neighborhood where it's even more desolate, is the cop's SUV, and all the cops are in it. So I walk up to it, and like a horror movie, the fucking back door opens, and then I get in, and now I'm sitting in the back seat in between two cops with two cops in the front seat. This is a very vulnerable position. I got nowhere I could go. I'm at their mercy. I just pull out all the money, I give it to the dude in the front, he counts it up, and he's like, all right, man, you could go. I'm like, all right, just like that. I just start to climb over the dude to get out, and I open the door, and I'm almost all the way out, and I get a hand on my shoulder. And I'm like, oh, fuck, this is it. I knew it, was gonna, it wasn't gonna be that easy. Like, something bad is about to happen to me. And like, way too rough, he just spins me around, like, to make a point. And he looks at me, and he says, hey, you forgot this and just gives me back all my drugs. <laughs> Apparently, that's how it works. You give them money and you get all your drugs back. And at that point, I was like, fuck you, God, I don't even believe in you. <laughs> I'm getting high, motherfucker. See you on my deathbed. <laughs> Boom, we do the switch. We put the fucking cane, the tequila bottles, we get back into the truck and we're driving. We pay the toll, we're on the toll road, which is pretty much home free at this point. And we haven't said a word, it's just like the adrenaline and, and we didn't say anything to each other. 
And we hit that moment where it's just road ahead of us and we're feeling pretty safe. And I feel him turning to say something to me. And I'm like, this is it. This is going to be our first uh, best friend I love you moment, right? He's going to turn and be like, thank you so much. I love you. And I've been waiting for him to say it. So I'm going to say I love you too. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is going to be a big best friend moment here. And he looks at me and he says, you paid them way too much money. <laughs> Fuck you, Gary. You owe me a million pesos, homie. He still hasn't paid me back. Thank you very much. Look at you, the counter. Look you, the counter. Look at you, the This is Resk. This is The Kills behind me now. And we just heard from Rob Christensen before that, a little play off the Beatles that our editor Jeff Barr did. And I wanted to let you guys know about this crazy thing that's happening on October 5th. The week of October 5th is when Maximum Fun, the network of podcasts we belong to, we're going to switch hosts for all our podcasts. I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work, but I will be hosting International Waters. If you've never heard it, it's a super smart, super silly pop culture quiz show between American and British comedians. That's Dave Holmes is normally the host there. I hope I turn out to be good at that. And this show, Risk, on October 5th, will be hosted by none other than John Hodgman. Absolutely such an honor, a brilliant writer and actor. You know him from The Daily Show. His books are spectacular. And his podcast, of course, is Judge John Hodgman, a completely addictive show in its own right. So stay tuned for all of that on the week of October 5th. And remember this, from September 17th through September 22nd, all purchases made from the Risk shop at our site, risk-show.com, that have two or more items in the order will be eligible for free shipping. You know, there's all kinds of mugs and totes. Oh, my God, do we have totes. And the little, you know, phone protector cases, all of that good stuff. There will be a clickable banner to show the promo code that needs to be entered and uh, you got to check. You got to at least check out what's at the shop. Lots of good stuff, plus all those fantastic episodes from the first years that you can't get anywhere else now. Let's get to our final story from yet another of our recent live shows. This is Willa Quinn with a story we call Wellbutrin Blues. We are fever. We are fever. Typical. 
My very first day on the job, a body alarm went off and the whole compound went on lockdown. I was working as a nurse in a federal women's prison and in prison, a body alarm goes off when a staff member is threatened and then half the staff lock up all the inmates and the other half rush to help the officer that's in trouble. So this time the body alarm came from inside of the clinic. Apparently, an inmate who was a schizophrenic and already in shackles had headbutted a doctor during her exam. So when I got to the scene, somebody shouted, you, give her five milligrams of Haldol, stat. So my first day working in prison was also about one week after I had graduated from nursing school. So I ran to the pharmacy and tried to figure out how the hell to prepare a five milligram Haldol injection. Haldol is this really strong antipsychotic medication and it's hard to draw it up into a syringe because the liquid is thick, like simple syrup. But I did my best and I ran back to the scene and saw this very large, very muscular woman being held down and I said, hello ma'am. I'm going to give you a shot in your arm now. And then I stuck the needle into her shoulder and tried to inject it, but I hadn't screwed it on right, so the needle broke off in her shoulder. And then I squirted the simple syrup, like blop, 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 all down her arm. And then I watched this woman very slowly turn her head and look at the broken needle still sticking out of her shoulder. And then very slowly look up at me with this amused and sympathetic expression on her face that I will never forget. I became a prison nurse because I've always been interested in public health and working with an underserved community. Also, if you sign a contract to work in prison, they give you a lot of money to pay off your nursing school tuition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But the catch is that if for any reason you don't make it through the first year and a half of your contract, you owe the government back double the amount of money that they gave you. So for me, that would have been about $70,000. But I figured that even if it was terrible, I could do anything for a year and a half. The thing that surprised me the most about working as a prison nurse is that even as a nurse, I was also expected to be a corrections officer. I had become a nurse because I wanted to be caring and supportive to my patients, but in prison, nurses are also expected to maintain order, which sometimes even means sending your patients to solitary confinement when they break the rules. So this became an issue most frequently when I was passing out medications on the pill line. We didn't give out a lot of narcotics that really make you high, like painkillers. So the most popular pills that people would sell on the compound was an antidepressant called Wellbutrin, which is actually a pretty common antidepressant, but somebody had figured out that if you grind it up and snort it, it works on your neurotransmitters in a very similar manner as cocaine, but it also causes seizures. And I had seen this happen with one of my patients pretty early on. It was this woman named Reba, and she was this anxious, older lady who was always up in the clinic with this eternal sinus infection. And she had basically no septum from decades of doing coke. And when she tried to keep up that same pace with some fat rails of Wellbutrin, we found her collapsed and twitching on the floor of the shower room. So I was pretty strict about pill line. 
the most important thing was to always be consistent. Never make it personal. So that meant that I would bust women that maybe I had spent a lot of time taking care of, women who had confided in me, women that I liked very much. And you're not supposed to like people in prison, but nursing is intimate and it's impossible not to care about someone that you're taking care of. So I checked everybody's mouth exactly the same way and if they were cheeking, I busted them. No favorites, no exceptions. Now, you're also not supposed to dislike anybody in prison, but there was this one inmate that really got under my skin. Her name was Andrea, and I knew she was cheeking her Wellbutrin. All of the nurses could tell, because when she swallowed, it looked like she was holding her breath in this weird way. She had this technique of keeping it far back in her throat and then coughing it up later, and we could never quite catch her. So Andrea was an interesting case. I had access to their files, so I knew that she was serving time for importing ivory from poached elephants from Africa into the United States. Mm -hmm. And she was intelligent and stunningly beautiful with creamy caramel skin and these perfectly even mid to thin dreadlocks that I had no idea how she kept up so well in prison. But I did not like her. I'd watched her bully other inmates, and I knew she was selling her pills to addicts. She always seemed completely in control, and she looked down her nose patiently at staff and carried herself in this way that made it seem like she didn't even notice that she was incarcerated. And all these things made me uncomfortable. I tried hard to be authoritative when I worked there. It was my job, and it was required of me to keep people safe. But to be honest, I always felt pretty strange about having a ring on my belt with keys that I used to lock other people up at night. It's an unnatural dynamic, and the only way to forget that it is is if everybody plays out their roles. Officer, inmate, we all agree that this is what we're supposed to be. But Andrea had this natural power that always made me remember how strange and artificial it was that I had so much control over these people. I think it was the way that she made me feel about myself that really made me dislike her so much. And I developed kind of this personal vendetta to bust her, cheeking her pills. I thought about it all the time, like made plans to figure out how I could catch her, but I never got the chance because she got in trouble for something completely unrelated and got sent to solitary. I also had to give medications to inmates in solitary. And even over there, when I gave her the Wellbutrin, I had the feeling she was keeping it in her throat. I even heard her cough it up one time when I walked down the hall, but I still could never quite catch her, and it was making me crazy. Until one night I got smart. When I was on my way to pass out medications in solitary, I stopped at the book cart, and I picked up a romance novel. So when I gave Andrea her cup of Wellbutrin, I opened up the book and I started to read because I figured that if I was focused on reading, she couldn't make me feel uncomfortable. So I stood there reading for a full 15 minutes until I was sure that the pill had either dissolved or slid down her gullet and then I closed the book and I walked away. And the next night I came back and I did the exact same thing. But this time she got pissed. She said, you cannot do that to me. And I said, do what? And she said, you can't stare at me like that. 
And then she immediately pulled down her pants and sat on the toilet and said, Officer, this nurse won't stop staring at me while I'm trying to pee. And then she bolded her eyes at me. But the officer didn't come, and I never looked up from my book. So I did this every day for a week, and she was just getting so pissed that she was totally losing it, and I loved every second of it. By Saturday night, when I walked up to the cell and handed her the cup of Wellbutrin, she said, I don't want it, and I said, no problem, and walked away. Now, this was not exactly the high-minded public health mission that I'd had in mind when I signed up for this job, but whatever, I had won this battle of wits, and I was feeling really good about it. So good, in fact, that when I went back to open the main pill line, I cranked up the radio and I rocked out while I was passing out pills to the rest of the inmates. I remember every Saturday night there was this heavy metal show that came on the radio. It was The House of Hair, hosted by Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister. And that night I was like, really feeling it. But afterwards, when I was cleaning up, I noticed something terrible. There were three full boxes of Wellbutrin that were missing from the pharmacy shelf, um, each with a 30-day supply of pills. And I knew immediately what had happened. When I came back from solitary, I had been so amped up that I left the door open for just a couple minutes and somebody had reached in and grabbed three boxes of pills with probably about 100 pills. Now... (laughs) out on the compound. So what I should have done was write an incident report immediately, but I saw it all play out in my mind. I had allowed a huge amount of contraband onto the compound, and when they found out, I would probably be fired, which would mean breaking my contract and I would owe the government $70,000, and who would ever hire me after that? But the alternative was so easy. We kept track of the 30-day pill boxes, like the one that had been stolen, but nobody was counting the pills from the big bottles of Wellbutrin that we used to fill up the pill boxes. So I took one of those bottles and I filled up three more boxes and put labels on them so they looked exactly like the ones that had been taken. And I told myself that it had never happened. But the next day, it occurred to me that What I had done had been a lot more than a mistake. Concealing the fact that I had allowed all of this contraband onto the compound was a crime. And I hadn't told anybody, but obviously several of the inmates knew that this had happened. So... (laughs) Yeah. So I was terrified. I was just waiting all week paralyzed in fear, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I could tell that they were talking about it. I could see the way that the women were looking at me. (laughs) So by the end of the week, I saw Reba, the patient who had overdosed and I had cared for early on, making a beeline towards me. And... uh, I had gotten to know her pretty well since then. She was doing a lot better since the time that she had that seizure. And I knew that she hated people selling pills on the compound because she didn't want to get into it again. Um, So I had a very strong suspicion that she wanted to talk to me about the person who had taken the pill boxes. So 
I met with her after pill line, and we sat down in my office, and I just sat there, terrified, waiting for her to say it. If she brought up the pill boxes, I was going to have to write a report. And I think she sensed what I was thinking. I saw it pass across her face. And we sat there in silence for a minute. And then she said, never mind, and got up and walked away. And I never did get caught. And I quit that job the day after I finished my contract. But what a strange moment when that utterly powerless woman sitting across from me suddenly found herself with the power to completely derail my entire life with just a few sentences. And even more strange, that she would look at me, the person with the keys on my belt that I used to lock her up at night, and make the decision to show me mercy. for this week's episode folks this is i'm from barcelona behind me now and listen we have so many live shows coming up so many tour dates and i need for you guys to be going to risk-show.com slash tour to check those dates out for example on september 22nd and 23rd we're in portland oregon on the 24th and 25th we're in seattle And then we're in Toronto on October 9th. Now, we're still taking pitches for that Toronto show. The theme is God Damn. Send your pitches to Kevin at risk-show.com. The next date we have after that is in Denver. That's October 14th. The theme that night is Help. Email me your pitches, people from Denver, and then we're in Atlanta on November 6th. November 6th, we're in Atlanta. Nasty. Nasty is the theme that night. Pitch me your stories, people from Atlanta. Then we're in Milwaukee on November 14th. The theme that night is fuck this. So, Milwaukee, uh, send me your pitches. I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com. You can find all this information at risk-show.com slash tour. And have you seen our online course yet? You can take a class 
that's all online. You can watch me giving lectures. There's three hours of video footage there. There's all sorts of annotated risk stories. We explain what's going on, what the storyteller is doing here, there. We have all sorts of worksheets that you can download and work with. Go to thestorystudio.org and purchase Intro to Storytelling Wow Your Crowd. You will be glad you did. And after all that, all I have to say is, folks, today's the day. Take a risk.